Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I am your host, Sammy Yunan. Welcome to an astonishing conversation with Richard Lowenstein, the Australian director of Mystify Michael Hutchins, an outstanding and heartbreaking documentary on the NXS frontman we lost in 1997. Before we get into this, I gotta apologize. I am terrible at recording Skype interviews. They mystify me. So the first couple of minutes of this conversation isn't peanut butter smooth. It's a new sensation. It takes me a couple of minutes to get the levels just right. In this world, I am a nerd. I am not a geek. I apologize to you and to Richard as well for my original sin. You can hear everything. It's just not the clearest sound, what what you need from myself and all podcasters. I appreciate the patience and thank you for staying by my side and listening like thieves. Yeah, I'm done with all that. Here we go. Beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time. I just want to, before we get started actually on the documentary, the Michael Hodgins documentary, Australia's been suffering with a lot of the fires. Is that okay, like where you are? Like you're in Melbourne, right? Yeah, Melbourne's um, pretty safe usually from bushfires, but um, we've got pretty bad smog and smoke from the, the fires. They seem all the, all the uh, blooms of smoke from the fires are sort of blowing across Melbourne and Sydney and heading out towards New Zealand, so it's sort of pretty... Uh, apocalyptic and but yeah everything's kind of safe mm-hmm. here in the environment anyway okay good so hopefully you and the people that you love and your family are okay i know yeah no we're okay the cat's okay but yeah it's a pretty big national disaster but it's a sort of a country where where all the trees are now out in the country so in the inner city areas it's it's relatively safe okay so we'll go from one tragedy i guess to another uh, and your uh, documentary, Mystify, profile a portrait of uh, Michael Hutchins. I have to say that this doc feels fresh. Like when you look at the Twitter response, the YouTube comments, the things that people are saying online, Michael died in 1997, but like they still love Michael and they miss Michael. Like it feels like a very contemporary hurt. It doesn't feel like it's been like 20 years, you know? Yeah, it feels like that to me as well. I mean, I, I started making the film 10 years ago, so and that seemed to go very quickly, but it's... Um, He's kind of loved on a personal way as well as a, a musical way. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon because he did sort of open himself up as a person. A lot of pop stars put on masks and, and fake IDs, you know, like like Bowie or um, Bono. Mm-hmm. Even they, they put on sort of personas yeah. where, where Michael actually didn't really have a persona. He, he just said... I'm me and this is, you know, I think that's what made me kind of vulnerable just by being himself up there. I mean, even if you look at see, people like Prince, who are fantastic, of course, but Prince is a whole created personality, you know, who, who is the guy underneath Prince, whereas Michael said, said, I'm Michael Hutchins and this is me and sort of exposed himself with all his vulnerabilities. And I think that's what part of his appeal was people could identify with him, both men and women. Yeah, watching the documentary, I felt like I met Michael now for the first time. Mm-hmm. Because he'd been this like rock star and everything, and especially the way media was back then. There was no internet, right? Especially with the kick era. And so you were just kind of down to like VH1 or Rolling Stone or whatever was whatever they did interviews, right? So now I felt like I met Michael for the first time. When we were looking through all those interviews, you know, he, he was sent out really with the aim to publicize the next album. So even a lot of those interviews, when they were shown on MTV or VH1 or whatever, they're all fairly manufactured and pushing the, the image of a rock star. And, you know, we, we found amazing stuff just in the outtakes of some of those interviews where he's just being himself. And, of course, that 
that doesn't get to air back in that day. No one really even sort of interviewed him much for who he actually was, you know, mm-hmm. and, until it was all too late. What you're talking about, like the authentic interview, you talked about people like Kali Minogue, uh, Helena Christensen, uh, his family. You had to do these kind of authentic interviews, right? Yes. In terms of like being comfortable enough that they could trust you, that they could open up to you and share these stories and stuff like that. Was that kind of a difficult yeah. skill or were like that was just very easy and everybody wanted to kind of just talk about Michael? Well, I've got to admit, I, I grew up in the presence of a very well-known oral historian who was my mother, who was quite an entity in Australia, like the equivalent of a Studs Terkel in, in America. And so I sort of grew up in that environment of how to get people to tell the truth or how to get them to relax and how to get them to trust you and everything. But in, in this case in particular, because I was very close to Michael and all his partners and all the people, you know, when when you sort of, you dig up an old manager, for example, who knew Michael for 10 years in the peak of his success, they remember me as a trustworthy person. You know, so, oh, yeah, I can tell my story to you, but I won't tell it to those tabloids or, you know, all the other reporters banging on my door. So... I had a, I had an advantage from a number of levels, but the partners in particular who I believed were going to tell us, you know, a story that had never been told before, I, I believed, an intimate story, they immediately trusted me because of the time we'd known each other when they were dating Michael, you know, and we'd, we'd hang out. And I'd never really, you know, sold my story or done anything sort of scurrilous with my experience. Like, like a lot of the girlfriends, like Helena, Kylie, Michelle, I, I kept my experiences to myself as personal things. So it was like this little core group of friends and collaborators of Michael who trusted each other and who'd, who'd sort of kept their story secret. You know, Chris Thomas is another one. Chris Thomas, who produced three of their albums, you know, was full of war stories that he could have gone to the press with but um but none of us did and so it sort of was like this little society of people who'd kept quiet who said you know well now's the time to actually do something authentic and now's the time to trust someone with our memories before they disappeared you know yeah i mentioned like how the fans and people are reacting and like it feels like a contemporary hurt like he just passed away last year or something it doesn't feel like it's been 20 yes, years yes yes and was that the same kind of thing when you sat down and you talked to like Kali minogue or helena christensen absolutely it's like you know i mean a, a lot of us um <laughs> don't like growing up so some sometimes you know including michael was you know part of his story was his peter pan quality and 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 the sort of joy of suddenly snapping back 20 years as if it was yesterday is that, you know, if, if you if you don't look in the mirror, you can actually you can actually imagine it was just it literally was yesterday, you mm-hmm. know. And it, because nothing's actually traversed in those 20 years, you know, the, the band sort of stumbled of doing reality shows and things that that I think Michael would have hated, and management didn't really do anything of any great respect with his legacy and it's it sort of is like a little blip that's nothing has happened nothing legitimate there hasn't been a great book about him or you know i think tina hutchins has just released one that's that's um 
that's quite good. But, you know, in the 20 years, it was just like, let's exploit him. And then the tabloids going, well, let's put these headlines out there and let's sort of jump on this rumour that we've that was spread, you know, in the in the months after his death and about yeah, autoeroticism. Yeah. Well, let's do, you know, let's do all this normal tabloid stuff. And then you sort of go, well, it is sudden like, like yesterday because nothing has progressed, you know, <laughs> so... so it was. It was seemed to be. It was time, and it wasn't just my decision. It was a, you know, I ran. I ran around the group of, of Michael intimates, in, and especially, particularly the close girlfriends, and they all said, "Yeah, it is time that we did something." You know, we all we all did something together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of it too. It just feels like there's a like a momentum got interrupted. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. When a band goes on tour, it's really disruptive to their family, to everything, because it's like, especially when like the band like U2 or something goes on tour, it's 18 months or the next couple of years, right? So it's a pile of momentum. You keep going city to city, and you kind of document that too in the early years for NXS, just city after yeah, city absolutely. after city. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish I'd had more time in the documentary to sort of look at, at how that damages the personal lives, even though, you know, the... The public out there think it's all sort of hotel rooms and sex drugs and groupies and funsies mm-hmm. and and of course there is fun and there's parties but you know there's there is sort of really tragic personal issues happening because fathers are torn away from their children and in Michael's case you know he falls in love with Kylie or Michelle or whatever but the touring tears you know there's a, there's a whole lot of interpretations to that song never tears apart because you know touring does keep you apart keep you out of a relationship or out of a family relationship because as you say you're on tour for 18 months and you might have three weeks off here where you can fly home and see your loved one because your loved one has a job you know Mm -hmm. or there's a family they've got to go to school and I, i remember in particular hearing stories of tim farris who had two or three kids i think you know, being, being like literally not seeing his children being born and then having to be play the next night and then sort of them not being, you know, management not having air tickets for them to travel and, and also, and so then they had to stay behind, you know, all these sort of ridiculous stories of, and, and I, and having worked with you too, you sort of see how, um, even though they've got, fantastic management they they make sure they spend their family time it, it still is a, a fairly dysfunctional uh, relationship you can have with your with your family and children you, know, you try to make up for it with intense holiday periods and things but honestly it's like being on you know you know soldier going away to war sometimes yeah or even like a teacher like how you can be so busy during the school year and then you have all of a sudden summer off and then you're home all the time it's kind of That's disruptive. True. My mother was a teacher, so yeah, I know, I know that well. <laughs> yeah. What you're talking about, too, is also related to love, because there was a weird tension where, like, the NXS was wildly popular, hugely successful, and obviously, like, yes. you see, like, the friends and the family that come through this whole documentary and the band and everything. He was well-loved, but at the same time, he didn't necessarily either feel that or couldn't grasp that. Well, you know, you, you can sort of go into, on that front, the nature of love. I guess he was... He was loved by the fans, and and he was loved like even from band and everyone like a like a brother, at, you know, as a collaborator. But like all families, you you squabble and there's issues involved. And um, 
I, I do actually think he suffered from the uh, incessant touring in the fact that it was, incre- you know, as, as, as I think the Kylie and Michael section shows, and that's even worse because they're both touring, but he's, he did suffer from the lack of um, an intimate relationship. He loved being intimate. He loved being in a relationship. You know, he wasn't this sort of classic sort of any group he will do, rock star, you know. And I'm sure when he was young, it's fun to um, be on the road and see different girls. But mm-hmm. by the time I got to know him in 84, that had well and truly worn out. And, and he was just sort of desperate for the person he loved to be on the road with him. And of course, you know, in, in this case, it was Michelle. You know, she had a career and everything. So I, I do think there was this sort of... Uh, Yes, he was loved, but he it was incredibly hard to put that love into some kind of manifest or some kind of real thing because, like, like a lot of us have, you know. I mean, I, in, in that, if I compare my life at that time, I was in a stable relationship that, you know, with that person I would see the most part of the year and, you know, could be with and do mm-hmm. things with. And Michael would wake up in these incredible places as a t- touring rock star and he'd wake up and he'd spend the night you know singing to 50,000 people but he'd wake up alone yeah unless you know unless there was someone from the party and not so much just for the sex of the night he'd want to wander around Prague or wander around Paris or wherever they were you know for their day off but there's no one there mm-hmm. you know there's, there's a and he did. It's no coincidence that after that, Michelle, there is one missing girlfriend in the film who wouldn't talk. And there was a girl called Johnny who went on tour with him for two years and enacted that sort of, you know, he, he did get that for a moment. But I do think there is a, you know, part of the story of the film is this search for love, search, you know, so, and in, in, all, in all its different forms. You know, he wanted respect from his band and he wanted you know the love of the adoring crowds mm-hmm. but he, he also wanted the love of a partner that he loved back you know it's, and uh, sometimes that was incredibly difficult you know you look at helena christensen's career kylie's career michelle bennett's was a, a film producer who had to be on you know on call in sydney and it was a it was a, it was sort of tough it's not as not a not a um it's not what the cliche always says. It's not the Ozzy Osbourne life where you can just spend 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. having sex, drug, and rock and rolling and think that's great, you know? Yeah. So with that in mind, then, would you, from your perspective, would you classify this as like a love letter to Michael? Well, I don't know about a love letter. It's uh, because I, you know, I tried very, you know, of course I was connected and I was his friend, but it was it was more of an authenticity level. I, I did get very angry about what was you know as as I, as I mentioned I come from a background of historians and I started to get very angry about this um, quite very large figure and not just in Australian musical history but world mus- musical history where nothing authentic was being left behind. So I didn't I didn't want it to be this sort of um, sort of uh, eulogy love letter as a in a personal thing i wanted to try to be as objective as possible and go this is the person i knew and this is the person a lot of a lot of the people who are close to him knew like this was the intimate person the person you 
you saw backstage or behind the scenes or you went on holiday with and and I think that's an incredibly important story. I mean, if someone made a film about Prince like that, I'd be fascinated. You know, because yeah. like who the, the man behind the mask sort of story, and um, because I, I do think he what what the world saw, as you mentioned before, via MTV VH1 was a, a manufactured image, and I think that's kind of in 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 a in an ironic way was part of his undoing because the stereotype of the cliche rock star, you know, really came to sort of bite him in the bum at the end, especially, particularly when he had the accident and the two paramedics that arrived said, oh, this is just a drunk rock star, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's you know, almost like a Faustian, Faustian bargain where you, where you sort of, you get what, you, what you've been desiring. You've sold your soul on one level to be famous and, to have success, but that, but, but there's a there's a sting in the scorpion's tail. You know, it's like there's there's something it bites you back by being um, stereotyped. You kind of highlight that a few times in the in the documentary of like he wanted that quote unquote artistic success, very similar to like Nick Cage yes. versus like yes, yes. the fame and adoration of like something like Kick, for example, which kind of fell more in the pop genre, I guess. Didn't quite get the yes, necessarily yes. Accreditation. No, it's it's not it's not getting the uh, credibility that a Nick Cave or Leonard Cohen or you know even David Bowie does. It's, I mean, he he obviously loved that, and he said, you know, wow, we we wanted acceptance on a on a mass market level, but as soon as we got it, we we felt how shallow it was, and that's you know when you see him cut his hair and try to do an eclectic solo album and. Uh, there was a, there's a great line somewhere, you could probably Google it, where Nick Cave says, you know, because they, they were friends at, at one stage, and, you know, both Michael and I were jealous of each other's reputation. You know, mm-hmm. Nick was jealous of Michael's, you know, crowds that he'd pull and his commercial success, and Michael was jealous of Nick's credibility and, and, and the great reviews he'd get from magazines like NME, who, you know, i got to say, the NME, which was the Bible of uh, English rock journalism, mm-hmm. were just brutal to in excess through the 80s and really largely slanted towards the Australian colonial thing, like nothing nothing authentic or nothing good's ever going to come from Australia. It was, if you go researching the NME reviews and it's horrific how they wrote about in excess. Yeah. And yet that rave about Duran Duran, you know, it's just like, it was really bigoted. And, you know, on one level, Nick Cave went to England very early on and got embraced as the second coming of Christ. And, and Michael just just wanted that respect from what then was the, was the doyen of, of music, pop music respectability, which was the English press. And it's kind of, again, another irony that it's the English press that sort of crucified him at the end. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, like, in the doc, how a number of people were kind of comparing in excess, especially at their height, to, like, you 2 And I did that, too, back in the day. Uh, it was kind of mm. like, it was in excess, R.E.M., and U2. Those were the three bigger ones. Yes, absolutely. But as I was watching the documentary and as I got to basically meet Michael for the first time, he reminded me a lot more of Bowie on that side, where, like, voracious readers, like, the tension between, like, staying at home 
versus like going on the road and experiencing new things and experimenting and doing the, these kind of things. Yes, yes. But at the same time, Bowie was lucky because he got out of his downward spiral. He was able to clean up and go to Berlin and do all those things and then go on to that commercial and critical success that you're just talking about. Whereas Michael, it a- felt like he got cut off. Yeah, yeah I mean, Bo- Bowie and Mark Boland were Michael's idols. And, um, you know, Bo- Bowie is a, is a great case in point because, um, you know, but what, what Bowie did to sort of... Um, to clean up and resurrect his sort of credibility and everything going to Berlin is very, very much what you two ended up doing to, to survive the grunge era, you know, so they, they Baby. Went, as the wall came down, they went to Berlin to basically, instead of being Primal Scream or um, Nirvana, they, they went to, um, to reinvent themselves that way. And uh, I think, I think in excess have done something, who knows what they would have done Mm-hmm. Um, but right at that point when they needed to reinvent for the new decade, that's when Michael had his accident. And, you know, when you, when you look at the, especially the, the, um, the current research on, on what traumatic head injury, you know, does to your cognitive skills and everything, it's, it's, and he had on his plate, not only I've got to keep my personal life together, but I've got to keep this band, you know, on the top of the charts, you know, and, and a lot of that weight, obviously, you know, no matter what other band members say, the, a lot of that weight fell on his shoulders because he was a co-writer, he was the singer, performer, he had the feel for his songs, and, you know, so it was him and Andrew Farris basically writing the hits, and um, so it's it, it was a hell of a lot of pressure on him, and... Um, but yeah, he, there, there was there was this similarity. I mean, he, he loved Bowie, and and I gotta say though, Bono, having worked with them as well with you two, is a similarly a voracious reader. And you know, I mean, a lot of people forget these um, these kids are uh, dragged out of school at the age of 15, 16, or leave school to mm-hmm. be pop stars, and their education stops. You know, so I think it's what sort of separates the. Um, the ones that actually tend to last through the decades are the ones like Bowie and Bono and and what Michael was doing is the ones that self-educate, the ones that say, you know, I don't actually have a university education. I don't actually have, uh, you know, I didn't actually finish high school. So I've got to actually take responsibility for my own education. And on the road, they read and they, you know, suck in all the information that they perhaps would have learnt at university or something. And, and uh, that's what I felt when I was around Michael, that he was sort of taking responsibility for his own education because he loved being in conversations with intellectuals or um, filmmakers or artists and and understanding what everyone was talking about, the references that, oh, you've read this book, yeah, of course, you've read Marquis de Sade, you know, it's mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And... Um, and so he basically, whereas the other band members are off with their families or, you know, or whatever they're doing, sort of living a very lightish life, he was definitely, had his nose buried in a book, sort of keeping yeah. up with things, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's the tension, right? Because, like, like you said, you have to, like, write all these songs, you have to go on the tour, you have to do the rock stuff, uh, you have to make the music videos. It's sucking up a lot of time. And so you don't necessarily get to stay home, right? To read or like make a cup of tea and just like watch a TV show or something. Absolutely. I mean, all you all you've really got is the tour bus and and maybe you know 
hotel rooms at night. Well, hotel rooms at night are usually dinner and parties and things like that. So you got the tour bus where you um, you can either watch a movie or read your book or whatever. And um, so yeah, it's it's. But every you know, almost every hour of your day is full. You wake as as mentioned in the film by one of his uh, managers. You know, mm-hmm. you wake up, you got ten interviews. You got to play that night and. And everyone throwing all this stuff, and they all say, "Oh, you've had a day. You know, we'll give you a day off on Sunday, maybe if you're lucky. You know." But then again, something just happens in, you know, on the other side of the planet, and they say, "Can we fly you to New York to do a press conference on your on your day off?" And Michael would go, "Yeah, sure, why not?" You know, and, and it was, oh, yeah, I would say I I was around it. I would see it. He was just, he would just take on whatever they asked him to do, and you know. And so there was very, there was very little time for himself and his soul, and and it, and even when he had a girlfriend, there was very little time. You know, there's a couple of weeks in Bali or something like that. Was was the the bulk of it? I mean, but you see how fragile the the whole process is, the whole system is, because you have that that horrific comment from Oasis where they dismiss in excess and Michael as has beens. And I have to yes, admit, yes. like I did the same thing too, because like Kick was amazing. And then I found X a little bit uneven, and then fo- yeah. that was followed up by Welcome to Wherever You Are and Full Moon Dirty Hearts. And I thought both of those were terrible. Sorry about that, uh, but I thought both. But then, no, no, I'm, uh, look, I'm no fan of in excess. <laughs> yeah. So, but then yeah. when they got to elegantly wasted, I'm like, oh, they're back in business. Like they found out the rhythm yes. or the whatever it is that they were missing, and it's like, yes, here we go now. Yes, yes, I do. I do think that's problem in the um, pop music industry is that. You, you do something gets created in in kind of all innocence. I mean, they never expected Kick to be as big as it was, and it sort of it's just like I'm I'm writing this bunch of songs about what we're going through right now, and you know how people will like. Mm-hmm. Then it gets it sells six million records. Their success is all over the place. They're they're put up there in competition with U2 at that time, and then next time you go in the studio. There's all these people just staring at you, going, "Make that happen again," or "Are you going to be a one-hit one?" And the the pressure, the innocence is lost. It's now it's pressure. Yeah. How do we do that? And uh, and I got to say, you know, having worked with both U2 and In Excess at that same time, U2 were left alone, and they they were kind of um, just given this space to work out what to do next, mm-hmm. uh, where. In excess had all these like record company execs and managers all sort of boring, you know, who were saying that was fantastic, but let's do that again. Let's do it. write another Need You Tonight, and they're trying to say we got to we got to grow, we got to do something, and then and then they go no no just just make us more money. <laughs> and it yeah, was, it was really like there was no kind of emotional creative space that was really given to, to how. How the creative process works. There was just this sort of uh, rabid, rabid money men sort of going, make us rich again. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a very different experience, management-wise, of how these sort of uh, you know the goose that lay the golden eggs were treated. You know. Yeah, they're almost treated like a like a there casino jackpot. There was creative freedom by Bono and, and Edge and and U2 when I worked with them. It was just like they ran the show. Whereas I worked with an excess, and there was other people running the show, pulling the strings. Just to highlight, like you worked on like uh, videos from Never Tear Us Apart, uh, New Sensation, 
Uh, you mentioned Need You Tonight, uh, right until like Suicide Blonde, By My Side. And you mentioned also like working with you too. You worked on like Desire Video and things like that. Can you talk about the in excess and Michael's creative process? So when they come to you and they want to do a video like Never Tear Us Apart or Guns in the Sky, like what is the process like and how is it kind of like different than like say how you two would approach you and say let's do the Desire video? Well, Michael from the very beginning, the first video I did was uh, Burn For You off the Swing album and then we literally did 20 to 30 together. But um, my, Michael would just trust you. Michael and the band would just trust you. They sort of going, you know, we we do what we do and you can tell us your idea and sometimes I just write it out on a napkin. Uh, Need You Tonight was like, I want to do moving black and white Xeroxes animated together and, and then I want to do color Xeroxes because that technology has just been invented. And um, so, and they would go, you know, they're lovely guys who, who'd seen some of my other work and just sort of trusted you and went, okay, that mm-hmm. sounds good. And, um, and you know, off, off we go and we'd work out the budget and we'd do it. And sometimes, you know, it's a great, the schedule I needed tonight was like uh, two days of shooting and three months of post-production, which in music video land was a big no-no, you know, to say I want three months to get all these effects right. Mm-hmm. And uh, steam's coming out of the uh, management's ears and things like this whereas with you too it's very much concepts and ideas and and you know it's i'm not sure what's more valid or not but it's a valid way of working but but bono and edge would be sitting there discussing concepts and things that the songs meant or what their themes they were talking about and uh, i i clearly remember in contrast to how major tonight happened that bono would I was telling this story to him just a few weeks ago when he toured, and that he would take me into a room with a with a um, a television, you know, a classic television in America with fifty channels on it, which we don't have in Australia or England, and uh, and he's just flicking between the channels and saying, "See that? How it's all just a jumble of different media." Um, that's the that's the feeling I want in desire, and so you'd sort of take that concept, and and then we've, we're recording this rattle and hum album, and we don't have any time, so the the most you're going to have with this is half an hour in a black room. So mm. I'd sort of take that concept and uh, and do what I can with it, you know. Yeah. And so there was there was a lot of uh, a lot more creative input, but usually a lot more constraints. In excess would say. We want something that's, you know, that just blows everyone away. What are you going to do for us? Here's the song, you know. And I would sit there and close my eyes and play it a few times and imagine what I think would work best with this song. And, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's I, I, you know, I think the end results sort of stand for themselves. The in excess ones are a conceptual sort of... Um, conceptual videos that where the where the director or the creator has thought through this conceptual idea and they to me they seem a lot more complete whereas the U2 ones and I only worked with them for a short period of time I did Love Town with BB King some live con- but the the U2 ones are um that I did anyway are, are really um shot on the run you know very much like documentary footage cut together Mm-hmm. Into a um, into a music video. Yeah. So with all the things we're talking about, creativity and Michael's issues, 
his life cut tragically short. Is this uh, like a Michael Hutchins documentary necessarily, or is this like can anybody who doesn't know NXS or Michael come see this? Like, is this a documentary about fame and mental health? Because these are big topics now that we're kind of grappling with and how people behave and, and um, what they do with their fame and with their power. So is this something that people... Absolutely. It was, it was a, a fable on, on fame and success and the creative process. And, and you know, sometimes these the sort of shy little kids are just dragged out of their boyhood and thrown into this world totally unprepared for what's going to be thrown at them. Wanting it, of course. They are, they're not, they're not, not wanting it. It's like every... It was my, my teenage fantasy to be a to be a, uh, a pop star and I would I would stand there doing air guitar in front of the mirror, you know. And so there's not really a resistance, but it is this it is this Faustian bargain is that they, they say you can have the glittering prizes, but yeah. we're not gonna tell you right now what the what the downside's gonna be. Because we're all you know, if it all goes well we're all gonna make money out of you. And so yeah, I, we we didn't make it for the fans or you know, it didn't really matter to us that you, if you knew in excess or not. And, you know, to be to be frank, when I was traveling through America doing the interviews, nobody, no taxi driver, no Uber driver, nobody had mm-hmm. heard of in excess or remembered them. You know, I'd have to sing the song sometimes to anyone over 40, and I'd sing Need You Tonight in the cab, and then they'd, oh, that song, yes. You yeah. know? <laughs> and um, so I, I did make it, as you say, as a, as a, a fable about the the trials and tribulations of, of pop stardom and instant fame and mental health and, and caring, you know, and seeing beyond the surface. And, um, and that's, that's how I wanted it to be seen. I, I mean, there's a whole other story in the, in the story of in excess and everything. And, and we, we started sort of telling that story interweaving it with the Michael story, but we just found as a feature doc, we didn't have enough time to sort of really get into the processes of how they, were in excess and how those great songs were written and packet full of back catalogue and everything so we we actually did focus on michael as if he was the unknown rock star you know here's a here's a story of someone you may not have even heard of but but it's a it's a story that's fascinating and tragic and sad but also inspirational about the nature of you know the the um almost exhilarated creative life of an artist because I'm not, I'm not sure if I can, apart from modeling, I can't think of another art form where, um, where you're, you're a has-been at 32, you know? Yes. <laughs> because, yeah, it's, it's um, in most art forms, painting, filmmaking, you're just sort of getting going at that age and, uh, and you're an icon when you're 60 or 70. Mm-hmm. But in the pop world, you really have to be incredibly talented and lucky and everything to to get to that level like the rolling stones or or you two or, or bowie you know who was yeah. still very active to the day he died and um so it's it's it is a very cruel industry a, a cruel mistress as i yeah. <laughs> tend to say that, that 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 ages you prematurely you know michael at 32 was having a midlife crisis where most of us have it in their forties or fifties, you know. Mm-hmm. And is that where the title comes from, Mystify? I know it's one of their hits, 
But mystify also means to like perplex the mind or bewilder somebody, right? Absolutely. It, it's a, it's a, it was a mystifying jigsaw puzzle, and I, I, that was one of the first decisions I made because as I went into it, my first interview was 2009 with Bono, and I, I went into it going, this is, uh, you know, <laughs> without the without the pun intended, this is an incredibly mystifying jigsaw puzzle. I, I knew this person 15 years. I was next to him. I went to the parties and everything. And I had a video camera most of the time. Didn't turn the camera on him and say, tell me who you really are, Michael. I, I, I had no idea of what I was going, getting into and going to discover and everything. And uh, I just sort of stood by him like a lot of Australian mates do and went along for the ride and without actually turning and going you know who the hell are you and, and what makes you tick and tell us about your childhood and you know so it was a it was a journey of discovery for myself and as well and and it was incredible yeah it was a mystifying jigsaw puzzle yeah so then when i asked you like were people comfortable trusting you and confiding with you and telling you these stories or whatever and the way you're just talking about now about the bono interview at the beginning they they almost don't seem like interviews. They almost seem like therapy sessions or something. Is that a more accurate <laughs> description? Yes, that's very yeah, that's very perceptive because we we would go into a dark room. You know, I did start filming the interviews, but we stopped that you know within the first year or so. But I would go into a dark room, and again, that goes back to what I used to observe with my mother, as I I was my mother's sort of tape recorder guy when she would get these people down to talk, you know, sit them in a room and talk to them about the Great Depression. And a very similar thing would happen. It was be, she would become like their therapist and, and stories would appear that no one, they, you know, they'd forgotten and everything. Because um, that's the sort of intimacy I wanted. I would sit down with a tape recorder or sometimes a recording studio in a dark room and say, there's no time constraints. We can go as long as we like. And, and everyone would start with saying, oh, I'll be finished in an hour. And then, you know, five hours later, it's still going, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and tears would come and memories would come. And you just sit there conversing like, like friends because they would remember me back then. And so they're not talking to a stranger. Mm-hmm. They're actually talking to someone they feel safe with, and like a therapist and who remember the time when we did this and, and then that and then I went off and did that with him and then you know so it was it's a it's like two friends talking I don't think there's anyone there's a few people who you know, appeared in his life at the very end but the but the majority of, of interviewees and you know there was 30 or 40 more that didn't make it in the film but the majority of them um, I knew as a friend even if it was a friend 20 years ago. And so there was this element of, of therapy coming out because a lot of us had bottled up stuff over the last 20, 30 years, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, there was a lot of tears happening. So this might be a personal question. I apologize, but then you feel like this was closure then or cathartic or how would you describe it? Like, do you feel like you said what you wanted to say now? I think it's cathartic for a lot, a lot of people including the fans because i gotta say people didn't seem happy with what the you know the tabloid headlines and the yeah. rumors and it's like even if you sort of go ah oh, autoeroticism yeah that's the old naughty rock star we we know there's still these question marks that doesn't quite make sense you know so 
it was uh, definitely cathartic for me because not only did I find out a lot more about my friend, but I felt that I, I felt I owed him, you know, and history owed him, but I owed him and I was the only person because of all my connections and the amount of footage I actually had myself that that was going to do this. But so I, I did, I felt, yeah, that it was cathartic for me personally, professionally, that he'd, he'd um, he changed my life in a variety of ways. Not, you know, not only the work and and the reputation that um, helped my career with, but the the um, the employment at, at certain times. But but also cathartic for this sort of group of group of friends who just sort of go, you know, who were there going. The story's never really been told properly, and and. Sometimes there'd be some TV special that would appear or, ju- you know, mm-hmm. just as we were making the film, I think one of our local channels here did a whole two-hour documentary and you'd get this string of phone calls of, from the inner sanctum of Michael Friends going, that was disgusting. That was I, I watched that for two, two, three hours and nothing I saw reminded me of the person I knew, you mm-hmm. know, or... Or the, or the musician he actually was. It was just some, I don't know what it was, you know. It was, And that wasn't the first time that had happened. So I do think from my experience, the response has been incredibly positive in that, you know, they would, it's, it, it is only one and a half hours, so it's very hard to tell a life in all its um, full dimensions in one and a half hours. But yeah. people are saying, you know, as much as you actually can, you've captured who he actually was the the element of the michael we knew and loved you know and there's a hell of a lot more there to to tell you know sometimes i wished i'd had one of these um you know four to six hour documentary series to to Mm -hmm. go into because we certainly had the footage and but um so there's over an hour of dvd extras of bits that didn't make it into the film and and there's, uh, you know, people go in who are expecting the in-excess story, don't get it, the in-excess story. They, yeah. don't, they don't get how, you know, all these, those albums were made and wallow in the music and all that. But um, but that's, yeah, that's another story, another film, I, I think. You're fortunate because, I mean, obviously you knew Michael and you hung out in that circle and you went on vacation and things like that with Kylie Minogue and stuff. I've seen you talk about that in other interviews. Mm. But... You mentioned earlier before about Prince and Bowie. Uh, his birthday is uh, tomorrow. When these people pass away, the fans like us, when you saw like Michael's mm. life cut short in the middle, of that like we talked about the momentum, you don't have a way to respond or to kind of say what's in your heart and like how much that music meant to you and what what he brought and no. how he changed your life. You you got lucky with Michael and that you were able to say like this is where I'm at, like, here's the closure that you were looking for. You know what I mean? You got to execute it and say it in an articulate way. We just always kind of bumble yes. around for words. Yeah, no, I, I was I was lucky on a number of ways, you know. Lucky that those events and those connections happened to me. But also incredibly lucky that I kept a record of a lot of it. Though, I, you know, as I said before, I wish I'd sat him down and done a, a talking head interview, you know, where it was just two friends shooting the shit. But, um... No, but I did have in my attic this amazing footage that I, you know, some of it I didn't realize was there until we started the film. But I knew I had all the outtakes to the music videos. I knew I had some 
background, you know, some behind-the-scenes uh, video and stuff. And uh, and I also knew I wasn't going to give it away to anyone. I just uh, mm-hmm. said, you know, that that's there. So I and I knew I had the access to these people. So I did. I do. Yeah, I do feel I was in a very lucky position. And other people had tried to get me to cooperate, and either with my archive or my memories. And I just went, you know, I'm I'm not totally convinced you're the yeah. you're the right person to do it and everything and um so i i I found myself in a very you know i found myself in a very unique position but i it was also a responsibility like you know every everyone who knew mike was saying well if you're not going to do it who's going to do it (laughs) so it's and um and so i i just said yeah it's it's um something that needs to be done yeah, and, you know, I, I, I haven't mentioned that it, initially it came out of a um, concept of doing a dramatized feature film. Yeah, and and the first interview with Bono was for the DVD extras of this dramatized feature film because my background is drama rather than documentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, along the way, and I think this this sort of helps shape the narrative arc of the documentary, which is very immersive, almost like a fictional film except that it's, it's real footage. Um, along the way, it just um, the idea of getting an actor to imitate him and doing it all that way, it fell away because it's sort of like I would look at Michael's footage and I would look at you know a screen test of an actor or whatever, and I'm just going, it's, it's never going to be right getting someone to pretend to be him or inhabit his spirit or whatever. I mean, that might find a market, but but what I felt was more important for me was to actually use the real Michael in the story about his own life, you know? Like, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's a fine film. It's okay as a film, but I don't yeah. feel like I knew or understood Freddie Mercury better, if that makes sense. No, and the same with The Doors. You know, I, I thought The Doors was a fine film, and Val Kilmer did a great job with Fantastic Jim job. Morrison. But then, you know, it's it's not the real Jim Morrison story. It, it, it's got a role, and it's got a market and everything. And one day, you know, that might happen with Michael if there was enough interest. But, um, but you know, I, I before the doors came along, there was there was many Jim Morrison documentaries, and and, uh, and there probably still is. I mean, look at how many documentaries on David Bowie, you know, there yeah. are, and and all different aspects of his life and amazing footage and everything and you know and eventually there'll probably be a a dramatic feature film about bowie but i think they're all just sort of filling in little little bits of the story including the dramatized feature film and uh, and i just felt the real michael needed to have his say first you know yeah thank you so much for the documentary where can people Thank find you. you online or to see the DVD or pick it up or if there's additional uh, a, screenings coming up? I think up the right Canadian here. release is still coming. Um, it's going to get a theatrical release. So it's just I've never had a um, response from the distributor. But I, if you like, I'll, I'll go through my emails and find out who is the distributor. For and sure. And I'll send you the distributor. But um, That would be nice because we sent you some Canadian firefighters, right? Sorry? We sent you some Canadian firefighters for the fires, right? That's right. Yes, thank you very much. So that would be nice to have the the documentary screening here. Yes. Now, we played at Hot Docs earlier in the year, and mm-hmm. um, 
the the turnout was amazing because yeah. you know in, uh, you probably know in excess were very popular in Canada. But, very, um, yeah. So I'm I'm just not sure when the uh, Canadian release is. It, it's it's getting screened uh, today, I think, in America. But um, I'll I'll find out the distributor and you can hassle them directly. Perfect. Sounds good. What about you? What's your next project now after this uh, bit of closure? Now, what's your, what are you going to move on to? Ah, uh, uh, that's that's a good question because we've we've been doing ten ten years of like four different documentaries back to back. Wow. But, um, it's uh, I'm trying to do a drama now about a um uh the early early sixties and the the beginnings of rock and roll in Australia and it's a, a six part mini series that I'm I'm trying to get up based on true stories and things in in king's cross in sydney sydney it's sort of uh it's a it's kind of an interesting um true story that we want to dramatize not 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 an artist or not no artist you'd know but it's just sort of about that era where australian rock and rollers before they got confident enough to write their own songs were just doing cover versions of american songs but still getting to be very popular Mm -hmm. so it's like very early 60s called sex and thugs and rock and roll nice yes so it's uh i was surprised in the documentary australia is not necessarily a prominent i guess character for lack of a better term i mean you go all over the place you're in hong kong uh london south of france paris you're in all these different kind of places and countries and i was kind of surprised at how australia didn't quite loom as large necessarily in michael's arc yeah, it was it was a bit of a problem when we when we decided to sort of cut the early days of the band section, and that's one of the extras. Is that was when they were very Australian. They were stuck in Australia. They were playing for years around all the pubs and everything to get their chops up in the early, very early eighties, late seventies. And uh, by the time that our sort of story starts, um, they're very much an international band. They spent ninety percent of their time overseas, consciously pushing themselves around the world as an international band and it's and i think that's why they became you know i'm like i remember going to america in the early 80s 84 85 and everyone thought they were an english band you know yeah yeah with shabu shabar and everything they they because michael had an english accent they they didn't think they were australian and um so but they they very consciously sort of de-australianized themselves and even though they would love Australia and, they, you know, here was a homecoming, but literally their concerts, you know, they have big concert maybe around Christmas time or something, and then they'd head back on tour, you know, to conquer the world. Mm-hmm. It's one of the differences between them and, like, U2, right? U2's always kind of maintained that Irishness and Ireland fidelity, I guess, and kind of been really Absolutely, prominent about that. Yeah. I think the international things helped by Michael not having an Australian accent you know he, he was he grew up in Hong Kong with an English accent and um, and I I think that worked you know it worked within Australia there was a bit of a cultural cringe so it's almost like Australians could could consider him you know we, we prefer things from overseas in in a lot of a lot of levels and um, so it sort of worked both ways it sort of helped internationally it helped within Australia, and yet they could actually sort of pay homage to elements of Australia. Like one, I think one of their videos, "Kiss the Dirt," is like in the midst of desert, and but they they didn't wear their Australianness on their sleeve, like say Men at Work, or mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of 
cold, there's cold chisel as a band here that were fiercely Australian, but they didn't actually wear it on their sleeves. They just sort of said, well, they were very consciously being sort of creatures of the world, definitely. All right, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for the documentary. Thank you for taking the time to talk Thank to me. You. Thank you. Covered a lot. It was good. So hopefully everything is okay, like as I said, with the uh, fires and with everything like that going on. And uh, we'll yeah. look forward to the next, the uh, documentary series on rock and roll, Australian rock and roll. Thank you. And I was really moved by it because, like I said, I felt for the first time I met Michael now. Yeah. Because all those things, and never knew that happened to him. When I hear that, it's sort of going, you know, my work is done. Yeah, you did good. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thanks Have a, a good lot. day. That was crazy cool. So lately we're doing this thing where we tear down our celebrities for a variety of infractions and it's all gotten kind of gross. You get a limited time, a limited window with that individual and it's all you get. The window of even when they're great and cranking up fantastic music, uh, amazing albums, that window sometimes even gets smaller. You get one Bowie, you get one Prince, and you get one Michael Hutchins, and that's all you get. And once they're gone, one of the final In Excess singles, everything, Michael sings, yeah, we're not the only ones who bleed for the love that's lost. Trust, like the air we breathe, live, you got to lose some sleep. Everything you do for me, everything I do for you, the way you see the world, no one else comes close to you. Yes. Treasure these creators. Don't take them for granted. If you like their music, share it, enjoy it, be inspired, and make music. Be grateful for the time and the sacrifices they willingly and sometimes unwillingly made to make your life better, to make our lives better. So no matter what, never tear us apart. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, In Excess. Thank you, Richard, for this documentary and the chance to say goodbye. Rest now. Comments and questions and puns can be directed to my pal Sammy for Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. My pal Sammy for all three. Thank you for choosing to listen to me in a Netflix world.